Well, hello, fellow humans. This is Bob Ray, and welcome to another episode of Love Like a River, where we examine the statements and expressions of the God of the Old and New Testaments with the goal of discovering the practical applications of those words for our lives today. Our topic today is God's solution for your greatest problem. God's solution for your greatest problem. And this will be part one of a two-part answer. We said last week that we would come back with the answer, but as we developed the answer, studied for it, prepared for it, we realized you can't just do it in one part. So part one, and we're going to call this God tells us the truth. God's solution for your greatest problem starts with God telling us the truth. So uh, to recap, in our last episode, we covered man's greatest problem, our greatest problem, my greatest problem, your greatest problem. We demonstrated from scriptures what God says is our number one problem. And we saw that it's sin, three letters, S-I-N, and it is the problem. And that sin itself is defined as lawlessness. We looked at a number of scriptures uh, that showed that sin is lawlessness, beginning with the very first law that was given. God gave a command to Adam. Adam broke it. So to have kept the law would have been to live in blessing. To break the law was a bad thing. So from Adam to you and me, we are lawbreakers. Mankind does not like to hear this. We don't like this divine diagnosis, but it's the biblical truth that we are lawbreakers. We are lawless. In fact, the Bible says we are rebellious sinners. We don't like those words. Look around, see how many people are talking that way nowadays. Not many. Um, and the reason they're not talking about it is because of the diagnosis of the cure, the penalty. Uh, the penalty for being a sinner and lawbreaker, according to the scriptures, is death. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. You'll recall from our last study that God was very clear in his instruction, do this, yes, don't do that, no. Very clear in the consequences, if you do this thing, which I don't want you to do, if you do that, you surely will die. And man chose that thing, and guess what? Ever since then, death has been part of the human family. And the scriptures don't blame it all on Adam. Since him, uh, the scriptures also say that we all have fallen short. In Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, it says, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There's, no, there's not one good one out there. Um, so mankind as individuals and as a whole really has no answer for this problem. And this is why people don't talk about it. They want to ignore it. Bury your head in the sand. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about this massive problem that we all have. Because uh, from a human perspective, there's really no route of escape unless it's God's way. There's no human route of escape. There's no return to relationship with God on our own. But we try. In today's society, we, we try and we seek out um, some higher life through financial success, through self-discovery, through self-actualization, uh, personal freedom and independence, 
developing a personal philosophy. I've heard, I heard the, some, the other day somebody said they're, they've developed a personal OS operating system. And I wonder how that's going to go for them. But um, then, then also there's the new atheism. I will determine what I will believe and do. So there's all kinds of things going on in today's society, which is man's attempt to solve life's questions. And then there's a tried and true from distant past to present. Mankind has sought the answers to life through hedonism, living out a life of pleasure. The old atheism, which said, I will determine what I will believe and do. It's kind of sound the same, the new and the old. Uh, false leaders, charismatic leaders, gurus. You know, when I was a young man, I remember there was a guy named Jim Jones who uh, led a lot of people down to uh, a compound in uh, a cent it was a South American country, and they all drank Kool-Aid and died. There are plenty of false leaders out there, charismatic leaders, gurus, not one of them being the real savior, not one of them being Jesus Christ. So we've sought these answers through false leaders and through false religions. And what I mean by a false religion is any religious system based on man's works, man's attempts to reach God. And there's a lot of those out in the world. But ultimately, all of these options and the ones I haven't mentioned, all of them fail. And why is that? Why does man's every attempt to reach God, to live forever, to solve this issue of sin, why do they fail? Well, I'll tell you, it's because of this one truth, and you'll find it in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, where it says, it's by the name of Jesus Christ. The circumstances there, a man had been healed, he'd been brought back to wholeness. They, they said, who did this? By what authority? And they said, by the name of Jesus Christ, this man stands before you whole. And a few verses later, it says, there is salvation, which is deliverance from your sins and the coming wrath of God. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name, no other person, only Jesus. And that's why all these other attempts fail. Because you can't just add these self-made solutions. You can't try to just add, you know, stick a Jesus sticker on it and it's good. No, the, the real person, the real individual, the real resurrected Jesus Christ is the only individual, no other name. This is the biblical answer. Only Jesus provides the way the solution, the answers to sin's penalty. Remember, our problem is sin, and I'm saying that all these other things do not answer that question. They do not get us back to a life with God. And I'd like to show you a few sections of Scripture which illustrate our hopelessness and Jesus's uniqueness why we really need to abandon all these other attempts at, at finding life and turn to the one that's provided by God. So the scene that I want to read to you is found in the book of Revelation, chapter 5. 
I'm going to go ahead and read the first four verses. Now, we'll, for your notes, we're going to be covering verses 1 through 14, but let me read the first four verses. So, verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Now, you might say, well, Bob, this is a scene in heaven. This is some book I don't know about. Who cares? Well, the book of Revelation is a, a revelation, a writing, a book given to us by God. And he gives us insight into events that happen in heaven. And this scene is very important because the book itself it says has seven seals and no one can open this book and yet as you continue to read the book of revelation those seven seals are very critical to the future of mankind if you want to know how this book gets unsealed you gotta read with me here in chapter five so look at verse one it says there's this book sealed okay not just a seal that anybody could go up and like put a you know letter opener in there and pop them off. No, these seals are divine seals. They are not able to be opened by any person, you know, just some random person walking up. Okay, it says it's sealed, and then this question that comes forth, it, and it says, who is worthy? So there, you get a hint there that someone has to be worthy to open the book, not just anyone, someone who's specifically worthy and capable of opening that book. And a search is done. A search is done in all of heaven, all of earth, under the earth, among the dead. And the answer that comes back is there's no one, underline that, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth that's able to open the book. It's a sealed book, but it, it needs to be opened. And so the response in verse 4, this individual, John, said he began to weep. He began to weep greatly because nobody was found that could open this book. They couldn't even look into it. It's not like from a distance or you got up close, you could peek. No, you couldn't peek. It's sealed. And there's no one, not one individual in all of creation that could do this, the task. And I want to make a point here that we do not think often enough about our hopelessness this image is an image of hopelessness, man's hopelessness. We don't have it within ourselves to unseal the books of God. We don't have it within ourselves to produce 
the answer. It's not like you can walk up and say, abracadabra, open sesame. You, you and I don't have any ability, and we do not think enough about our hopelessness before God. Now, let's move on to verse 5. It says, one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is Jesus Christ. And this verse tells us, though no man or creature or beast is there that can undo this book, there is one. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, he has overcome. He is able to. Now, further identification of this individual in verse six says, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb. So you have the throne and the, the creatures, and then you have the elders. And in between them, he looks and he beholds a lamb as if slain. Now, do you remember what John the Baptist said? Behold the lamb of God. Who was he speaking about? He was speaking about Jesus Christ. And that name is placed upon Jesus from that moment all the way through to here in Revelation, where he is understood to be the lamb. And it says he's standing there as if slain. When he returned to show the disciples that he was really alive, he said, here's my scars. Go ahead, touch these nail marks and touch my side. So the, the effects of the crucifixion, the, the signs, uh, the scars of the crucifixion are still on this individual. And he appeared as if slain. He'd been crucified. And in verse 7, it says, And he came and he took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Yes, Jesus is able to take the book. In verse 8, And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before who? The Lamb. Okay, we do not appreciate who Jesus is. We do not appreciate enough what he did on the cross. We do not appreciate enough the title, the lamb. But in heaven, they appreciate this. Listen to verse nine. It says, they sang a new song saying, worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals for thou wast slain and did purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And now let me use modern English. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and you purchased for God with your blood. What did you purchase? Men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And for those people that are gender confused, when it says men here, he means everybody, mankind, men, women, children, from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Jesus did a work that not only breaks those seals, but he breaks the bondage of sin in the lives of every person, every person, and we'll talk about 
the second step of that, but every person who trusts in him. Now look at verse 11. And I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands. Picture this scene. I mean, you've seen a rock concert, okay? All these people standing around Bruce Springsteen, the Beatles, the Who, you know, those are old bands, right? But uh, how about you 2 That's an older band too, right? <laughs> the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Thousands and thousands standing. You've seen a rock concert. Well, in heaven, there's a rock concert. The rock of ages is being worshipped by thousands of thousands, angels and humans, saying with a loud voice in verse 12, worthy is the lamb. See, there's that term again, this lamb that was slain, sacrificed. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and honor and glory and blessing man, does he deserve all that? Really? Come on now. The scriptures say he, he is worthy to receive power, riches, wisdom, honor, glory, and blessing. We too undervalue the work of Jesus Christ. All of creation is going to worship the lamb. You and I need to get in line with this. Some of you for the first time are realizing who Jesus Christ is. The scriptures say he is the lamb that was sacrificed for the sins of the world. And here in Revelation is this image of the lamb. Verse 13, listen to this. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard them. John said, I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped, and all of heaven was in awe of the Lamb. All of heaven is beholding the one, the only one worthy to break the seal, the only one worthy to open the book. There's too much self in modern world, in the modern world, how great we are, what we can do. If I think it, I can do it. If you think it, conceive it, believe it, achieve it. I'm not saying those principles don't work, but the focus is so much on us, we have cut God out of our lives. Sinful people that we are, we reject God and his basic, simple message. Why isn't our reaction like this scene in heaven? Why aren't we worshiping God as the lamb, the king, the savior, the one who delivers us, delivers you from your sins? Why is it? Because we do not take the time to see what John saw. When's the last time you spent extended time in prayer or meditation or in the scriptures, crying out to God, God, open my eyes to see? Why isn't it? Because we have too many excuses and distractions. 
We have dinner plans. We have commitments. We can't afford to take the time off. We aren't interested. We're carnal. We're fleshly. We're worldly. We're immature. We're babies in Christ at five and 10 and 15 years into the game. At 20 and 25 years, we're still walking around in the tide pools of Christianity. Or maybe you've been hanging around it all that time and never dipped a toe. We are without excuse, says Romans. We like to think we have excuse. We like to think we have the arguments that defeat the Bible, defeat God. Oh, in my feeble thinking, I'm able to outsmart God. Most of us do not respond correctly or accurately or biblically because we are spiritually dead in our sins. And then I'll change that to say you are spiritually dead in your sins because I've changed that. That's changed in my life. God did something in my life, but has he done it in yours? The real reason that most people do not respond like that scene in heaven is because they are spiritually dead. And this takes from last week's last episode that sin is our problem. What are the wages of sin? Death. Death. And then there are some who have come to Christ and you're spiritually asleep. So I want to speak to two groups right now. There's a verse out of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, you need to meditate on. It says this in Ephesians 5, verse 14, it says, Awake, sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now, what's this whole thing about saying you're dead? Well, read, read chapter 2 of Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, verse 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And that's either past tense because you've already be, become a follower of Jesus, or it's present tense that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. For me, it's past tense. I was dead in my trespasses and sins, in which I formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived. How did we live? In the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath even as the rest. Now, those are a bunch of words people don't want to hear nowadays. There are a bunch of words, oh, that hurts me, that offends me. Well, if you want to know what the Bible says, um, you want to know what God says, you're going to get offended because he loves us too much to not tell us the truth. Biblical fact, all of those outside of Jesus Christ are spiritually dead, dead to God, dead to his son, Jesus Christ, dead to his kingdom and his will for their lives, physically alive, but spiritually dead to God. What's the best picture of that? Well, there's a couple. One, just take a good looking branch off a tree, chop it off and look at it. It looks alive, but it's dying. You've cut off its source. You've cut off its life. The sap no longer is supplying it and it will over time wither and just harden and then you'll look at it and say it's dead but you know it was dead the moment it got cut off and that's what happened to us 
from the garden forward. We got cut off. And then our lives for varying years, some, some only live five years, some live 10 years, some live 50 years, some live up to 100 years. But no matter the length of the life, the physical life always comes to an end because the wages of sin is death. So why did we title this segment, part one, God Tells Us the Truth? Well, because to find God's answer, we need to hear the truth. Do you remember the woman at the well? Jesus sat at the well and the Samaritan woman came and she was there to draw water and Jesus began a conversation with her and she was surprised. Hey, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Why are you talking to me? The, over the course of the conversation, um, she realizes that he is a prophet and he lets her know, I am not only a prophet, I am the Messiah. She asks him for the water that he speaks of. He speaks of having eternal life, waters that will, will give her thirst, her quench forever. And she says, give this water to me. And you know what Jesus says at that very moment? He doesn't just pour out the answer. He says to her, go and bring your husband. Ooh, well, Jesus touched on a really sensitive subject there because guess what? She didn't have a husband. And he then prophesied and told her that she didn't have a husband, that she'd had five previous husbands and the guy she was living with was not her husband. That's what blew her away. What was Jesus doing? Jesus was addressing the sin in her life, which is his pattern. He will address the sin in our lives before he can give us his kingdom answer. Okay? That's why you hear him speaking to many of the people that he's healed. He says, go, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. Because sin is the element in our lives that has to go. You know, what fellowship has light and darkness. If God is holy and pure and we are sinful, how do those two mix? That sin has to be dealt with. It has to be eradicated. So I'd like to read um, out of the Gospel of John, a very interesting um, back and forth dialogue between Jesus and some of his fellow Jews. Now, Jesus was Jewish, right? And um, so Jesus was, was speaking to sons of Abraham. These are Jews. And he's in the temple because at the very last verse, he walks out of the temple. So he's probably amongst the people. He's probably amongst leaders, uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. It doesn't tell us exactly who's there, but being that he's in the temple and those Pharisees were all about listening to what he said to try to trap him, um, they were probably there, everybody with, you know, bated breath, waiting to hear what Jesus said. So Jesus um, has a confrontation with them that he initiates. So pick this up with me in the Gospel of John, chapter 8. Look at verse 32. It's a very familiar verse. Listen to the words. The truth shall make you free. You know, I see that on bumper stickers. I see that on social media posts. But do you really understand what that verse is saying? Jesus is saying the truth shall make you free. So guess what? If you don't have the truth, what are you? You're in captivity. This is how he's talking to the Jews. He says the truth shall make you free. 
he's implying that they're in some kind of captivity. And how do I prove that? Well, look at their response in verse 33. We are Abraham's offspring, and we have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? See, they, they got his words. They got his words. He was saying, you guys are in slavery. And they're going, no, 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 no. We're Abraham's offspring. We, we've never been enslaved to anyone. But look at verse 34. This is the critical verse in this whole dialogue. Jesus says, truly, truly. Now, remember, anytime he repeats himself like that, he's saying, hey, pay attention, lean in here. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So what is Jesus saying about your sin? Jesus himself is saying, you're a slave of sin. He said it to the Jews. This verse applies, applied to them, but it applies to all of us. It applies to you. It applies to me when I sin. And uh, now that I have become a follower of Jesus, sin is not my problem. I have... Uh, an advocate. I have a means of ridding myself of sin. Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Now, he said that they were Abraham's physical offspring. He acknowledged that. You are sons of Abraham. But he said also, you're not spiritual children of Abraham. So what does that mean for us? You know, we ourselves can say, well, we're God's creation. We're God's children. Well, we are his creation, but we're not his children. Anyone who does not follow Jesus Christ is not part of the family of God. So in this part, he's saying, yes, I acknowledge you're Abraham's offspring, but you're not his spiritual children. Verse 37, follow the conversation. I know that you are Abraham's offspring, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Verse 38, you also do things which you heard from your father. Now, it's very interesting here. Jesus is going to say that there's two possibilities for every person. You can have God as your father, or you can have someone else as a father. Now, here, somebody's going to get their feelings hurt with these words. But I'm just reading the Bible, folks. This is the way he talked to the Jewish people, and this is the way he would talk to you and I if he were here. He would acknowledge the reality of who our Father is. He says, you do the things which you hear from your father. And then they say in verse 39, Abraham is our father. And then he challenges them. Jesus was not one to back away. He said, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. Prove it. You know, if you say you are a follower of Abraham, you say you're his sons, why don't you act like him? Verse 40, as it is, you're seeking to kill me. Now, we know specifically he's talking about the leaders there because Jesus was flat out honest about the fact he knew they were trying to take him down. He knew they, were, they wanted to kill him. He knew that they would eventually kill him. You're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This is... Abraham did not do. 
So Jesus confronts him and says, your behavior does not match your words. You claim to be Abraham's son, but you don't act like him. He would not be doing this. You are doing the deeds of your father, verse 41. Verse 42, if God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. Do you love Jesus Christ? I'm asking this entire audience, everybody listening to me, do you love Jesus Christ? Because he said, if you loved, if God were your father, you would love me. You would love me. And this is Jesus Christ speaking. So verse 44, he goes on and he says, you are of your father, the devil. And you want to do the desires of your father. Now, listen, he's going to define who this father is. He's not God the father. What father is this? In this verse 44, he says, he was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies, and Jesus identifies their father as the devil. Now, do you think he just said fighting words to these people? They're claiming to be children of Abraham. He's just told them, no, your father's the devil. How do you think that went over in the temple? How do you think that went over amongst the religious leaders? But also, how do you think it went over amongst the average person standing there? You know, they're just going about their life. They're just trying to lead their life the best they can. Why would Jesus say something so mean? Why, why would he hurt people? Why would he offend people? You know, Jesus would not survive in today's social media. From our perspective, we'd shut him down. You know, Twitter would block his feed. Facebook would knock him off the air. Verse 46 if I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Again, folks, these are all the words of Jesus. Read it for yourself. Open the Bible, open the Gospel of John, open to chapter 8, read the verses. This is Jesus talking. If I speak the truth, why do you not believe me? Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Folks, that's the result of sin. Sin separates you from God. Some people listening to this podcast do not know God. You might even think you know God, but if you don't love Jesus Christ, if you've not allowed Jesus Christ to remove your sin, you do not know God. Verse 47, he who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. Now listen to the reaction of the people. I told you these were fighting words, right? Verse 48, it says, you are a Samaritan. Now, the worst thing a Jew could call you would be a Samaritan. Remember the, the parable, the story of the Samaritan? Um, the guy was robbed and the priest walked by him, the religious people walked by him, but who was it that took care of the man? It was the Samaritan. That was the, the answer to the story about who is my neighbor. Jesus 
lifted up the Samaritan. But the Samaritan, the reason he used the Samaritan is because the Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They were half-breeds. You know, they'd been carried away and intermingled with another race. And they're, you know, they, they worshiped a false god in a false form of worship. And the worst thing you could call someone is a Samaritan. Or they also said, you have a demon. So what did they revert to? Name calling. They didn't like what they were hearing. And this is what so many people do with the Bible and with God and with Jesus Christ. They revert to name calling. Verse 48, you're a Samaritan. You have a demon. And then Jesus just, again, he doesn't shy away. He walks right into it. I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Verse 51, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Now, please make a note here. This is a promise from Jesus Christ that if anyone keeps his word, they'll never see death. You are guaranteed physical death. Don't you think this verse is worth exploring? What does Jesus mean about not seeing death? Wouldn't that be worth looking into? Wouldn't that be worth exploring? Wouldn't that be worth receiving into your life and making that reality in your life? We're going to cover that promise in another podcast, but I want to challenge you right now to highlight that verse 51 and make a note. What is Jesus talking about? He says, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. I mean, tell you, that's what I want. When my mom was broken down in a hospital bed, couldn't speak as a result of uh, seizures and strokes, and she heard the promise of the gospel and the promise of a new body, she literally physically rocked in her bed like, I want that. Be honest. Wouldn't it be nice to live forever? Why does everyone make that a fairy tale? Why does everyone say that's impossible? Jesus Christ promised abundant life to the woman at the well, a well of water that would become a river of life. And here he's saying, if anyone keeps my word, they'll never see death. Isn't that worth pursuing and discovering what that's all about? Don't be lazy spiritually. You know, you don't need to run and go grab a hamburger or a hot dog or, <coughs> you know, it's, we're still in this uh, lockdown in certain places. Um, life's been changed for the last year because of COVID. We all have our different routines, but don't let your routine keep you from the truth of God. And now let's continue with verse 52 and 53. Jesus has just challenged them, you know, to come and receive his word. But 40, 52 and 53, they say, now we know that you have a demon. Now listen to their reasoning and then listen to Jesus's answer, which blows them away and should blow you and me away. They're saying, look, what you just said, now we know you're, you're a crazy man. We know you, you're freaked out. We know you have a demon. Because Abraham died, the prophets died. And you're saying, if anybody keeps your word, like follows your word, your instructions, they'll never see death. Man, you are a crazy man. That's, that is like psycho talk. And then they say specifically, surely you're not greater than our father Abraham who died. You're saying you're greater than Abraham? 
You're promising something that none of the prophets promised. You're promising something that Abraham couldn't give. And then listen to the last part of the verse, the question they ask. This is an important question because it's important, the question that you have to answer. They said to him, Jesus, whom do you make yourself out to be? Who do you make yourself out to be? Listen to what he says, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Let me explain a little bit. Abraham, through faith, saw God's plan. He understood that God was working in history, that way back from the garden, there was a promise that a prophet would come and one would crush Satan. It's all the way back in Genesis. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He knew there was a coming Messiah. He knew that God's promise would deliver Abraham and his people. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad. Abraham took joy in the fact that God had a plan. Now listen to verse 57. The Jews therefore said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? So they're challenging Jesus. They're, you're, you're, this is crazy talk, man. You're not, you're not even 50. You're like 30 years old, and Abraham's dead and gone. How could you possibly have seen Abraham? Now listen to this answer, and all you people out there who say that Jesus never claimed to be God, well, you need to listen to the scriptures. You need to read the scriptures in context. You need to understand what they say because they've just challenged him. The Jews of his time just challenged him saying, look, you're only 30 years old. You're not even 50 years old, and you're making yourself out to be greater than Abraham? Question mark? Verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly. Now, again, there's that repetition. Lean in close. Listen to what I'm about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Folks, that term, I am, is the name that God revealed in Exodus 3 before the burning bush. In Exodus 3, verse 14, when Moses was at the burning bush, God revealed his memorial name, his most intimate name, I am that I am. And here's Jesus claiming to be Yahweh, claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the eternally existent one. Look at what he said, before Abraham was born, I am. These people who say Jesus never claimed to be God, right here, Jesus is claiming to be I am. He's claiming to be Yahweh. He's claiming to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's claiming to be the eternally existent one. And he's answering their question, yes, I am greater than Abraham because I am your God. And some people will say, no, that's not what Jesus meant. That's not what Jesus meant. Well, folks, let's look at the people of his time. What was their reaction to his words? Did they understand what he was saying? What did they think he was saying? Look at verse 59. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to stone him. You know, they didn't just randomly pick up stones and stone people. You stone people for violations of the law. 
what would Jesus's violation of the law have been that would give them the right to stone him? Why did they want to stone him? For blasphemy, because he just made himself out to be God. He just said, I am. And it says that they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and he went out of the temple. The chief priests, the rabbis, the Sadducees, the people that were there, the average person understood there was a huge gulf between mankind and the God who had revealed himself as I am. And here was a man standing in their midst claiming to be I am. Jesus told the Jews that they were children of their father, the devil. That ticked them off. They got into an argument with God without realizing it. God said that they were not his at that moment, that they needed to see things as they really were, and that in order to serve him, they would need to give up their current master, the devil. Ouch! Jesus hurt their feelings with the truth. As I said, in today's era of supersensitive individuals, Jesus would probably be kicked off social media for speaking the Father's truth. Jesus fulfilled the Father's will by delivering the truth to his fallen creatures. So the first step of receiving God's solution for your sin is hearing and receiving the truth. That is the bad news that you need to hear before you can understand and appreciate the good news. You know, you've, you've probably heard about the good news, the gospel. Gospel means good news. But I think that there's a misunderstanding amongst people. Good news needs to be understood in the context of bad news. You know, part of the problem here is the modern church in America and in many parts of the world. There's not enough bad news being preached by the church today. There's too much fluff and entertainment. We're not giving the world the bad news. We're not giving the world the gospel. Too much fluff and entertainment. Jesus did not entertain the crowds. You saw by that last example out of Gospel of John, he confronted people with the truth. They got so mad at him, they wanted to kill him. They wanted to pick up stones and kill him. When's the last time your pastor said something that got the people upset? We need to be offended by the truth that we might be cured and healed. What he did was to tell the people the truth. And it offended many of them, but it also delivered multitudes from their sins. Look at the preaching of Peter in the book of Acts. He offends the people. He says, you crucified him. He gets right in their face. He said, this Jesus is the one who has sent the promise of the Father. This Jesus whom you crucified. He gets right in their face. The gospel gets in our face. The gospel is meant to point out the bad news that we need to hear in order that we can receive the good news of God. So we're offering this answer to our sin problem in two parts. Part one, you just heard. That's it for today's show. Thank you for spending time with us. 
Join us next time when we'll be discussing part two of God's solution for your greatest problem, where we'll examine the good news of God's solution for our great sin problem. Please remember to read the following two sections of scripture in preparation for that podcast. Same two I gave you last time, but I'm going to ask you, did you read them? Luke chapter 24, verse 45 through 49, and Romans, the book of Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. This is your host, Bob Ray, wishing you the best of God's wisdom and the deeper discovery of his love for you.